Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Sunday, August 30th. I don't know what to tell you, folks. Usually, it's Sunday before a Grand Slam. I would be amped on this mini break, right? And honestly, I am amped. Okay, I can find that gear. We're amped for the year's second Grand Slam to kick off the 2020 U.S. Open, slated to get underway on Monday. 256 of the best men's and women's tennis players in the world coming together in New York to compete in this slam. And obviously, I've said it before, but we didn't know if we were going to be able to say that over these past five and a half months. And of course, we are all excited for that action to start. We will be previewing each day's action here on the mini break. Of course, recapping what we saw that day before as well. So excited to have our usual slew of guests, Jamie McDonald, Matt Stokowiak, all of the usual names. We're excited for that coverage to get underway. And of course, if you've missed any of our U.S. Open preview content, you can go find all of it on our website, CrackRackets.com. Super producer Daniel Westoff putting together a really cool preview guide where you can find everything in one location. It's it's amazing how much more professional we've gotten over these last three years. And I know that's kind of self-aggrandizing, right? Kind of uh, egocentric to say, but you're part of something like this, this creative endeavor with a couple of your friends, a couple of buddies you met along the way. And it's just funny. I'm I'm really proud of the work we've done. So hopefully you've all been able to listen to, read all of the things we have been able to put together. If you haven't, you can go check it all out on our website. But the reason I was so apprehensive to start this pot, there are other things going on in the tennis world right now, things with potentially even larger implications than the result of a single Grand Slam. Of course, yesterday, the big news, Novak Djokovic, Vashik Pospisil, John Isner resigning from the ATP Player Council to form the PTPA, the Professional Tennis Players Association. That story broken in the New York Times by Ben Rothenberg and Christopher Clary. We had Ben on the podcast yesterday to give his initial reaction, you know, his initial uh, thoughts on this story. And of course, We've learned more since then, so just to start off to update you listeners, I want to talk about what we've learned since. We've also learned that a player at the U.S. Open has tested positive for COVID-19, Benoit Pair. Uh, testing positive, I believe, early on Sunday or late on Saturday. And so he has been removed from the U.S. Open men's singles draw. Players who were in contact with him, I believe it was fellow Frenchman Richard Gasquet, a couple of others as well. Uh, They have been put in quarantine as well, and they're supposed to be in quarantine for the next 10 days. I am sure they will have been tested immediately. And look, we've heard already, we've read already the U.S. Open releasing a statement. They, you know, They have procedures in place. They have protocol. They surely anticipated that this might happen, and now we get to see how those protocols hold up, how stringent, how strict they will be with their guidelines. We all remember Guido Pea, his trainer, whether it was a false positive or not. uh, You know, Ben expressing some skepticism yesterday, but Guido Pea pulled from uh, the tournament, the Western Southern, even though he did not test positive just as a precautionary measure. And, you know, players were upset about that decision. And so certainly the U.S. Open will be treading lightly, but at the same time, you want to ensure the safety and health. There's a reason these procedures, these measures are in place. And even if, you know, three players 
uh, are unable to play this event for the safety of everyone else, that's what you have to do. Tough choices are going to have to be made. And so we're going to get to see what this U.S. Open management can do. But anyways, those are two big stories. I also want to recap the Western Southern Open semifinals and finals. Just, you know, wrap that up as we preview tomorrow's first day of U.S. Open action. A really fun day ahead. Of course, it's just going to be me steering the ship. If you want to hear the draw breakdowns we have recorded today, Jamie McDonald with Matt Stokoyak on both of those podcasts. You can find them on our Great Shot podcast feed. We're rocking and rolling here at Crack Rackets as we prepare for these next two weeks in New York. And of course, the reason we're able to bring you all of that coverage here on the Mini Break podcast is because of the support we get from our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar. And I'm going to keep it simple today because I say it all the time. Look good, feel good, play good. Midwest Sports, Aerobar, your tennis performance. The equation's that simple, folks. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use the promo code CR15. You're going to have the, a look at every possible gear combination you could want. Strings, shoes, rackets, shorts, grips, grommets, you name it, shirts. They've got it all. Their experts can help guide you to make the right selections. MidwestSports.com. The promo code is CR15. And then again, to feel good, Aerobar, the only tennis-specific energy bar in the business. Not only does it come with a delicious product, but a delicious Delicious podcast as well. They join us every Thursday. Mark Aerosmith, uh, Andrew Golib for our Getting to the Point episodes. Brenda Schultz McCarthy, Malavia Washington, Jay Berger, Michael Russell, Bjorn Fertangelo, Lord Embry, you name it. We've had them on the show. It's been so fun to get to work with them the way you can support them by going to aerobar.com. Let them know we sent you there by using that promo code. Uh, cracked 15. Now, let's again, let's start quickly. We're, we're, we're going to go in order here with the Professional Tennis Players Association. More names starting to leak out about who is going to be joining their ranks. Again, their goal right now, the top 500 singles players, the top 200 doubles players on the men's side. A lot of justifiable criticism that they didn't have any women in, uh, involved in their organization when trying to form a professional tennis players union. You know who are, you know, the half of the professional tennis players out there, women. And for them to not have any women in their onset, that was not only a bad look, but it's just a tactical error. You have more leverage from a negotiating standpoint if you are collectively as a whole the United Players, you know, uh, Professional Tennis Players Association, men, women of every level coming together, using their bargaining power, saying, hey, these conditions we're competing in, like any union uh, with any uh, corporation, it's not right. We want improved conditions. And when you're bargaining together, you have inherently more power. And yes, we've talked about this excessively, perhaps at this point on these uh, podcasts over the past five and a half months. But you know, for so many of these players, whether it be wages, whether it be scheduling, whether it be more opportunity, whether it be, again, just revenue share of the grand slams, all these various issues, there are issues that confront both men and women. And so from the onset, just a mistake from the group not to include them. They've justifiably received a lot of criticism. Uh, regards, you know, Vashik Pospisil, he hosted a show called Tennis United with the WTA. And, you know, he came out today and said, look, we are in conversation conversations with many notable women's players. We just haven't had them in the equation. And, you know, you look at this uh, PTPA, they don't really have a platform yet of what they are trying to do. They are just trying to upset the status quo. And there's something to be said about taking a drastic measure, putting the onus on the ATP to respond from here. You know, Djokovic has said he does not want it to be an adversarial relationship between the PTPA and the ATP. But, 
Look, I mean, again, there were, I think, both sides that we saw the, all of the Grand Slams, the ATP, the WTA come out organized, so coordinated so quickly. That never happens. I mentioned that with Ben yesterday. So clearly we're at an inflection point, but some of the other names, they released an initial photo of the group. And again, that it's all men. Uh, that's justifiably a criticism. But some of the names, Djokovic, you know, Fritz, Hercats, Guido Pea, Taro Daniel, Martin Fucevic, Tommy Paul, Berrettini, Ryan Harrison, Ivo Karlovic, uh, you know, Amal Qureshi, Diego Schwartzman, uh, Alias Bedene, Philip Krajinovic, Damir Zumher, Christian Guerin. It's a lot of players. I mean, it's quite clear there are many out there upset with the status quo. We also saw yesterday Sam Query resign his seat from the ATP Player Council. He will be joining the PTPA. I believe Steve Johnson going to be joining the PTPA as well. And so... Look, this movement is real, and there's a clear conflict. There's a clear dividing line. Again, you want to hear more specifics on that, go check out the podcast I did yesterday with Ben Rothenberg, who broke this story. But this is it's an inflection point because we've talked about the past five and a half months, whether it be tour merger talks, whether it be unionization, improving conditions for players at the you know 100K or lower ITF levels. These are all issues that have confronted tennis for a long time, but now we see movement. And part of it is certainly a product of, hey, all of these players are in one location. They can't go anywhere. They're going to talk about things. And so that we see action in this moment, uh, it shouldn't be surprising. And of course, you know, all of that, you know, uh, when Naomi Osaka also makes the decision to pull out the players, uh, you know, the tournament stands in solidarity with her. I don't think any of the players would disagree with that decision. Well, certainly some would, but I don't think any, you know, it's not about disagreeing with that decision. It's the fact that they feel they weren't consulted and they're aggrieved by that fact. And even, you know, if consulted, I think they would have gone ahead and say, yes, let's stand in solidarity with Naomi Osaka. But the fact that they weren't uh, even consulted, that's their gripe. And so, again, all of these actions coming to a fold leading to this movement. It's interesting, folks, and it's something we'll continue to monitor, certainly, uh, as we uh, continue to, you know, as we continue to progress through this 2020 season, certainly, but as we progress into the future as well, this isn't going anywhere, folks, so it's something we'll all be keeping in the back of our mind throughout these next two weeks in New York, uh, something that's very prevalent in the front of all of our minds, of course, uh, you know, COVID-19, we've been living under a global pandemic now for, what, five and a half months, I moved to Indy February. February 1st. I've still only been downtown once, and that's not a complaint. That's just a reality. I've accepted that reality. I remember we got back from the National Indoors. We went out. We live by Butler's campus, and you know we went out to downtown Butler, and that feels like a lifetime ago because that was the last time I really went out and did every anything. Now, of course, you know I've gone and seen my family in Michigan, and that that's different. But to you know, I'm you know, all of us. The the point is. Our, our lives are different now uh, than they have really ever been. And so we're, we've all grown used to that, but we've also grown with the reality that, you know, someone you know eventually is, yeah, unfortunately, probably is going to test positive for this disease. No one, you know, it, it you can do whatever you want. You should follow every safety precaution, but sometimes this, you know, COVID-19 still finds a way. And so it, I don't want to say inevitable because that's too pessimistic, but it should come as a shock to no one when you have this many people in one location. Uh, given the prevalence of this disease, it's it's very likely that someone tests positive. And unfortunately for all of us, and for him in particular, Benoit Pair testing positive for COVID-19, and of course 
all of us wishing him a speedy recovery, a safety and health, of course. But, you know, you have to, when you're looking at this U.S. Open, again, I mentioned this at the top. If the U.S. Open and the USTA weren't prepared for this sort of scenario, then they just wasted five and a half months, and they're wasting all of our time right now, all of these resources, every dollar spilled into it. And that's why you know that's not the case. And, you know, you talk to people on the on the grounds. You've talked to people at the USTA. I've been fortunate enough to do that. They're in red alert. They're all their protocols now. It's contact tracing. It's who has Benoit been in contact with? Where has Benoit been? What do we need to do to not only, you, you know, just to figure out who's been exposed to him? How can we contain this to the best of our ability? But who might be compromised? And so we're going to learn a lot more. I'm recording this 2.15 p.m. on Sunday. I am sure we will learn a lot more by 3 p.m. I'm sure we'll even know even more by six. And then as play gets ready to go tomorrow, would it shock me if someone else is forced to withdraw from this event? No, it really wouldn't. And I know that's devastating. But again, these are the compromises we have to make if we want pro tennis back in our lives. There have to be safety and health protocols that ensure that if one player is exposed to coronavirus, that the entire tournament isn't compromised. And that's crushing to say, but it's just the reality we live in. And so, you know, if you're a fan of Benoit Pair or one of the players he hangs out with for no uh, for control, you know, you had no control over this situation. But, you know, if someone who is in his close proximity is asked to self-quarantine, is has to be removed from the tournament just because their results are inconclusive, yeah, that's going to absolutely suck for that player. And will there be lawsuits that come out of it? Inevitably. But I'm going to side with the tournament in that decision. Better safe than sorry. I would rather see any tennis than no tennis, even if it's less tennis. You know, less tennis is better than no tennis. And so, again, the tournaments have to proceed safely. They have to be cautious. That has to be their first concern. And so it shouldn't surprise anyone if you see more withdrawals as a result of this. And, again, the thing I want to say just to end this topic above anything else, of course, we are wishing Benoit Pair a safe and health you know a safe recovery and that he gets back healthy as soon as possible because of course there's still a ton of tour tennis pro you know for now on this schedule though you look at the numbers coming out of france right now for their daily covid19 numbers and it's very very concerning but we'll save that for as we get closer to that event so much can change uh, over these next two weeks things that can no longer change are the results of the western southern open we finally have it in the books we have our two champions and you know two very different champions right and let's start with the women's side now it's worth saying off the top Victoria Azarenka getting a win in this event after she received a walkover from Naomi Osaka Naomi Osaka pulling her hamstring uh, in the semifinal against Elise Mertens just not able uh, to play you know partially being precautious because of course the U.S. opens uh, you know on the horizon but she made it a point to say, hey, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I hurt myself. I'm not feeling comfortable. I didn't recover the way I'd like. I am going to sit this one out. And again, justifiably so if you're Naomi Osaka because you have to keep your eye on the prize. You have to be focused, of course, uh, on, you know, the, the U.S. Open, the big prize, the Grand Slam. And so 
you know, it's uh, it's unfortunate that that's the result we got in the end, but you start with the semifinals, and it was two really good matches, and, and I should say, let's start with our eventual champion, because she's earned that right, Victoria Azarenka, uh, who earns a three-set win, 4-6, 6-4, over Joe Conta, and look, Joe Conta played really well in this match. She made 62% of her first serves with 66% conversion rate on those points, used her full bag, right, got reached into the toolbox. She brought out the heavy spins, the slices, the drop shots, the angles, taking balls early. She moved well. She was, you know, physically, she looks locked in. She looks healthy. But Vika was just so steady and so patient. And I know this is a cliche, but it's that champion's mentality. It's of, okay, I need to weather the storm. My opponent right now playing really, really well. And you look in that first set for uh, Joe Conta. I mean, 16 of 20 on first serve points. She only faced one break point in the entire set, and she saved it. Meanwhile, she created seven break chances for herself in set number one, was only able to convert one of them. And again, that's a credit to Vika Azarang who converted 75% of her first serve points in this match. She was spectacular on serve as well, but Joe Conta was good. She was aggressive. She was moving as Aranka. She was controlling the points. She played an outstanding first set. And for Victoria Azarenka to stay steady, to continue to stretch Conta, to you know use pace into the Conta backhand, really go deep center, big targets, but just Conta's got these big ground strokes, so sometimes she'll produce a shank because she can be overwhelmed with pace. Azarenka just played a really tactically smart match, and she started moving forward more. She started being more aggressive on her second serve return. Joe Conta, 8 of 15 in the first serve on second serve points, 5 of 19 over the next two sets on second serve points. I mean, you know, 5 of 19. I know that's not 5 of 20, but essentially that's a 25% conversion rate. That's that's nishgit, as we would say in Yiddish. That's not very good for Joe Conta, and that's a credit to Azarenka who, again, was just doing a little bit of everything, was taking balls early, was comfortable moving forward, was serving, as I mentioned, really, really well in this match, made 62% of her first serves, 42 of 56 on those points. And she saved eight of the 11 break points she uh, she faced. She, you know, was five of 10 on her own break chances. And she capitalized, got off to a strong set into the start of the third, noticed Conta's uh, momentum, confidence was wavering, and just kind of jumped on her and took advantage of this match. And you look for Victoria Azarenka, who, again, gets the walk over, Ni- over Naomi Osaka. It's her first title uh, since back in 2016 when she won the Miami Open over Kuznetsova. I mean, she made a final last year in, in uh, Monterey where she lost to Muguruza in straight sets. But you look for her in terms of what she's done at ma- you know at the major events, at the premier mandatories, and at the Grand Slams. For her, that's her first. Well, I guess okay, Cincinnati's a premier five, but for her, it's her first semifinal or better at a premier five or higher level event since 2018 when she did it in Miami. As I mentioned, that first victory since Miami 2016. That's a huge confidence boost for Victoria Azarenka, who, you know, you look at her spot in the draw now. She has a really tricky potential second round match with Sabalenka, but moving forward for Azarenka, you know, she is currently uh, 31 years old, now back up to number 27 in the WTA rankings. 
she's in a good position, right? She no longer has to worry about getting into any event. She no longer has to worry about uh, maybe even being seated at the slams, which is always a luxury. Really good week of tennis for Victoria Azarenka. And again, when you look for what Azarenka accomplished this week in terms of the wins she got, it's not like it was the draw. She was the beneficiary of every upset, right? She beat Vekic round one. Garcia's a really good win round two. Cornet, Jabour, Kanta. Those are all high-quality wins, and she only dropped one set along the way. She probably could have dropped that first set against Jabour, but anyways, it's a really good week of performances. Now, I know what you're thinking to yourself. Is Victoria Azarenka a contender to win this U.S. Open crown? I'm still going to say no, simply because to ask her to play three straight weeks of this high-quality tennis, I haven't seen her do it in about two-plus years, right, since she went back-to-back, or I guess really in four years since she went back-to-back in Miami. And I think right after that Miami, she either won, she I think she won Indian Wells right before that. But, I mean, it sure, it's anyone's ball game in the women's game. So if you want to take Azarenka over Sabalenka, I can't fault you. But that is absolutely a very fun and very dangerous second-round match uh, for the top-seeded Sabalenka. Not the number one seed, but a top-ten seed in Sabalenka. But anyways, that was semifinal number one. And again, Victoria Azarenka, your eventual champion. Let's get to semifinal number two. And I just I want to be blunt. Two players who legitimately have a shot at winning this year's U.S. Open. Naomi Osaka, that's the obvious one. The number four seed, another straight set win here, 6-2-7-6. Really high level of play. You look at the things Osaka did one. The first serve percentage was, I'll just be honest, it was ghastly, but... 37 of 52 for a 71% conversion rate on those first serve points. She created nine break chances for herself, fought off 18 of the 21 break points she faced, and then another stat you love to see, seven of 24 on second serve points for her opponent. Osaka did the things she did best. I continue to say she's shown the highest level of play of any player uh, this week if on the women's side in the Western Southern Open when she's clicking. But Elise Mertens can 1,000% win this year's U.S. Open. And you look where she is in the draw. Sophia Kennan is her top four seed. She would have to beat her in the round of 16. You know, Azarenka, Sabalenka, that little uh, portion of the draw, Mertens would face the winner of in the quarterfinals to get to the semifinals. But, I mean, the 24-year-old is clicking right now. She created 21 break chances for herself on the Naomi Osaka serve. 21 break chances. And yeah, Osaka, you know, 52 of 105 on first serves in this match. It's a 49.5%. That's, you know, not great. But Mertens was just attacking. She was taking time away from Osaka. She was taking balls early, taking chances, and just playing to win. And, you know, 7 of 24 on the second serve. Yeah, I've said it from the beginning. Elise Mertens' problem is that if an Osaka, a Sabalenka is playing their best tennis, she can get hit off of the court because she's a she's a quality mover, but she's not a great mover. She's a really good anticipator, but she doesn't have that top-tier athleticism to where no one can hit her off the court, right? I mean, you look at a Simona Halep. Simona Halep's never going to get it hit off the court. It doesn't matter who she's facing. She's that sort of athlete. That's not Elise Mertens. 
Mertens, but she's a good athlete and she moves direction well. Again, she just plays such a smart game, takes such smart risks when she chooses to go down the line or chooses to play slicer, elevates a ball, or just she can do a lot of things well. And so she's confident too. She made a final in Prague on the clay where she lost to Halep here, a bunch of really good wins before falling to Osaka. And, you know, she lost that set six too pretty quickly, but did a really good job fighting in that second set, getting it to a breaker. You know, Osaka in the end, just a little bit too good. But Elise Mertens played some outstanding tennis here this week. You talk for Elise Mertens and what she did. I mean, it was a really good result, right, for Mertens here. Yes, she lost to Osaka, but she knocked out a red-hot Jessica Pagula, wins over Kudermatova, Mladenovic, and Pedersen as well. I'm pretty confident in Elise Mertens heading into the U.S. Open, and look, she faces a tricky first-round opponent in Laura Siegemund, but... Elise Mertens is one to watch, folks. She was so great this week. I think her level of play will translate into New York. And for Osaka, the question is, and, you know, someone mentioned this to me. They were like, oh, what if did Osaka? It was a conspiracy theory. You know, I got it in the notification, and I was like, I'm not even going to dignify this with a response. But just in case any of you for some reason are thinking it, I'll say this. There was a video floating around on tennis Twitter because someone was like, oh, did Osaka really just not play Thursday because she needed a day off because she was injured? No, there's a point against Mertens where Osaka goes to hit a backhand. She's stretched, and you can see after she hits the backhand, which goes in, she immediately grabs her hamstring and is like, oops, that didn't feel good. And so you could tell she got that injury in the midst of the match. And obviously for her, if she's recovered, if she's healthy— She's your favorite to win the U.S. Open on the women's side. She reached a level that I just don't think any other women did uh, during this event. And so, obviously, she's done it before. Why can't she do it again? But a really good week from her, a re- you know, both on and off the court, obviously. Really good week for Victoria Azarenka. All of these players who made a run this deep into a tournament after a five-and-a-half-month hiatus. Shout out to all of them. Let's flip over to the men's side now because, you know— I think had you asked me, and I, I hopefully if you've listened to this podcast, you will have gotten this perception, is it possible that both Novak Djokovic and Milos Raonic make the final of this Western and Southern Open? If you would have asked me that before you began, I would have said absolutely to Djokovic. And I would have said maybe for Milos, but we'll see what sort of shape he's in. Well, he was in exceptional shape all week long, folks. He gets to the final where he has Novak Djokovic on the ropes. He takes the first set over Djokovic 6-1. He goes up a quick break to love in the third set, but in the end, too much Novak Djokovic this week. He knocks off Bautista Agut in three sets. He then comes back, uh, and he then comes back to knock off Milos Raonic as well. Uh, this time, 1-6-6-3-6-4 in the final, but... We've all heard about the reign of Novak Djokovic. I, that that part is obvious. We talk about him a bunch throughout this week with Luke Jensen, with Matt Stokowiak on our men's draw preview. Let's start with the Rayonich component real quick. Against Stefano Tsitsipas, 28 winners against 16 unforced errors, but you take out the serving component of that, 14 winners against 11 unforced errors. At the net, he's 7 of 10. In total, you know, a one break of serve is what decides this match. Milos Raonic just, he is playing such confident tennis, and you look for Milos again, he's just playing, you know, his average second serve speed in this match against Tsitsipas, 118 miles per hour. 
I don't know how you beat someone who's hitting two serves over 115 miles per hour. And there was a point, I think Raonic goes up five. No, no, no. It was 4-2-40 love. And I'm talking to my roommate, Parker Thieneman. And I'm like, Parker, if you're Milos Raonic, you're up 5-2-40 love. And he missed the first serve. And I look at Parker and I say, you're hitting four more first serves, right? You're hitting... Five straight first serves from the first serve of 40 love, second serve 40 love, even if you double fault, which he did there. 40-15, you're hitting two first serves again. Maybe you throw in a second serve if you're only up 40-30. But for Milos Raonic, it's that simple for him. He makes a first serve. More often than not, he's winning the point. And I mean, you look at his conversion rate again in this tournament for Milos Raonic, what he was able to accomplish. Raonic in this match, 35 of 39 on first serve points. And I know what you're thinking. Stefano Tsitsipas one-handed backhand. Isn't that just a good matchup for Raonic? Well, I mean, Tsitsipas had Isner. He had Anderson. He had Opelka. He looked just fine. And Tsitsipas really could have taken that first set. And, you know, I'll get to him in a second. But for Milos, I mean, he goes 50 of, what, 65 on serve in this match. Made 60% of his first serves. Only faced one break point, and he saved it. It's about as good as it gets, folks. Half the game is holding serve, and Milos Raonic right now is doing it about 98% of the time. I mean, and that's just a good conversion rate, folks. You never bet against him in a tiebreaker, and he seems decisive. When he gets the forehand he wants, he goes after it. He moves forward. He'll slice the backhand, but he will hit through it from time to time. I mean, he's a contender, folks. He is really, really good. And so for Milos Raonic, great win for him in the semis over Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas, by the way, was right there. And I mean, you look at his percentages, you want that 59% first serve to be higher. But he's 28 of 36 on first serve points, 16 of 25 on second serve points, only faced one break point and did get broken on that chance. But... You know, three out of five set match, he still has a chance to get back in this one. And so, Stefano Tsitsipas, number four seed justifiably at the U.S. Open. He's one of four guys right now. You can hear about those other four guys on our contender pod with Luke Jensen, but who I think has a legitimate shot at winning this year's U.S. Open. And again, you know, for Raonic, he falls short against Djokovic. Uh, but in that match against Djokovic, he won that first set so comfortably, you know, 6-1. And for him, Djokovic didn't look great. But Raonic in this match, 26 winners against 25 unforced errors. You take away the serve, 16 winners against 22 unforced errors. I love the way he took chances. Now, he didn't move forward as frequently, and it's because Djokovic takes that return so early and because Djokovic so dangerous when he's on the run. So 10 of 20 at the net. I think if Raonic is going to upset Djokovic once he gets to uh, the year or once he, if they make meet in an eventual U.S. Open final, he needs to take more chances there. You also look at what he did on serve for Milos Raonic in this match against Djokovic. And by the way, Raonic, Raonic 74 total points won. Uh, Novak Djokovic, 73. But for Milos Raonic, I mean, Djokovic was just able to take time away on return in a way that Tsitsipas wasn't, wasn't, and, you know, 10 of 25 on second serve points for Raonic, indicative of that fact, but he was still 35 of 46 on his first serve, and to do anything like that against Novak Djokovic, that's really tough, so I thought Raonic was so great all week long, he clearly, him, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Djokovic, in my opinion, it's going to be one of those four guys who wins the U.S. Open. And I know that's not a hot take, but those are the only four guys I've seen. And I'll throw Alex Vera in there always. But those are the only four guys I've truly seen uh, who I think have shown a level of capable of doing it for these next two weeks. And, of course, the man, you know, you want to throw Roberto Bautista Gut in that list. 
Best, who, by the way, had Novak Djokovic in that match, won that first set 6-4, was up a break multiple times in the third. I think he even served for the match um, and played a really good tournament, by the way. Great win for him over Medvedev. Great win for him over Hatchinov. Had Djokovic on the brink. Roberto Bautista Gup just does a little bit of everything well. He makes that extra ball. It's so clear. He's physically fit. He's ready to go the distance in any match. He's going to extend you to the outer third. He's going to adjust as he sees how you're trying to play him. He's going to play high percentage tennis and create break chances for himself, but... The story, as always, is Novak Djokovic on a hard court. Novak Djokovic remaining undefeated during this 2020 season. I mean, the guy's an absolute stud. The guy is just ridiculous. And you look for him in that final, for him to come back from a set down, for him to just be no, you know, just not playing his best tennis, but just making that extra ball, taking it early, always seeming to make the passing shot he needs to make. You know, he 7-0s Roberto Bautista Gut in that third set breaker. He flips the script against Raonic, breaks him at love after he goes down to love in that third set to get back on serve, and then he's rocking and rolling. And, you know, in this match against Raonic, Djokovic just played to big targets. He gave himself margins, you know, 56% on the first serve, not great, but he's 40-58 on first serve points, 12 winners against 15 unforced errors. It was actually a 10-10 ratio if you take out the double faults and the aces. Um, He just... He stayed alive. He does his thing. He just is. You can never count him out of a match because he's always going to come up with that big shot. He's never afraid of the moment. He's always playing to win. He'll throw in the drop shot to make you uncomfortable. I just, I never cease to be amazed by how freaking good Novak Djokovic is on a hard court. And by the way, with this title, he ties Rafa with the most ATP 1000 wins in history from our friend Luca Branche at Luca Beck. And it's been too long since we've cited Luca Beck on this pod. Welcome back, Luca. It's good to have you. Um, you know, win percentage wise, Djokovic 35 ATP 1000 wins in 115 attempts, Nadal 35 in 118. Djokovic has won 30%. Of the ATP 1000 events he's answered, uh, he's uh, he's entered. Do you know how crazy that is to play an event over a hundred times and to win, or a hundred types of events and to win thirty percent of them in tennis? That's just ridiculous. He's won every Masters event twice now. Only guy to do that. That's just ridiculous. I mean, the guy's an absolute stud. And I mean, he's just, he's your favorite. I know he's got a neck injury. I know he's got a lot of off the court stuff going on right now as well. But you're just a fool if you don't think he's your favorite, and it he just is. You can't pick against him on a hard court right now, and I know it's only been like 10 weeks, but I can't emphasize enough. Do you know how freaking hard it is to go undefeated for 10 straight weeks in tennis? To go undefeated in 10 straight weeks in anything? I mean, what? Try pouring milk into your cereal bowl for 10 straight weeks, and if you don't get a single drip of milk come out of the cereal bowl, you've won. You're undefeated for 10 straight weeks, but you have to do it for 10 straight weeks because that's Novak Djokovic right now in pro tennis, undefeated. That wasn't the best analogy. I apologize, folks. I should have thought of something better, but the point is Novak Djokovic undefeated right now. It's just remarkable what we're seeing from him. And yeah, he enters as the favorite, regardless of what you think of him off the court, regardless of what you think of his tennis politics, impossible to be anything but amazed by the results he's produced by what he's able to do on the court. The guy is just a stud. Um, 
But that is all of the men's, you know, that's the recap of the Western and Southern. Of course, I just want to quickly give a shout out. Speaking of our friend Luca Beck, uh, yesterday, Carlos Alcaraz, the young uh, Spanish player, won his first challenger tournament. He becomes the one, two, three, I believe. Uh, so not, he's in the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. I apologize. Leave that all in, West off. That's some live math for you. The 15th youngest player. That's such a big number, but the 15th youngest player ever to win a challenger event. Some of the guys listed above him, Michael Chang, Richard Gasquet, FAA, Novak Djokovic, Del Potro, Santoro, Alex Virev. That's good company to keep. And, you know, some of the guys who are just a little bit older than him, Pat Cash, Jim Courier. Again, from a tennis perspective, that's where you want to be. Uh, of course, you look at some of the youngest champions since 2010, the list he joins, Felix Oshir Aliasim and Alexander Zverev. That is really good company to keep, and there's a reason we're all so excited about him. He's already, look, inside the top 250 at age 17 to have won a challenger title. The things he can do on a court, really, really special. So I know, you know, right now we're all focused on the action in New York, but I stay true to my challenger roots. I got to watch a little of him as well and just... Really exciting upside. Exciting to see what he does on various surfaces as well. That's the the last test for me is how does he equate himself across surfaces. And, you know, as soon as there are more events, I'm sure we will learn more about that. So shout out to Carlos Alcaraz. But with that in mind, folks, the U.S. Open kicking off play tomorrow. And of course, if you want to hear our picks for the day, you want to get in on the action with our friends at DraftKings, go listen to our GSP Ace of the Day video out every night so that you can get your picks in on time. But of course, the full podcast explaining out every morning at 8 a.m. Max Rothman joining me tonight to break down our day one matches. And of course, there are 64 first day matches. And so, so much tennis for us to enjoy to just quickly run through the highlights because we break all of these in depth, uh, down in depth on our, our draw previews. Zverev Anderson, Goff Sevastova, Isner Johnson, Collins Conteve, Opelka Gofan, Pagula Buzkova. That's all on day one. And folks, that's just a taste of the action. So again, be sure to follow along with us here on the mini break week in, week out, day in, day out, as we will be covering, you know, recapping all the day's matches, previewing the next ahead throughout these next two weeks. And as we do always here on the mini break podcast. And if again, you have missed any of our U.S. Open preview content, go to our website, crackrackets.com. You can find it all on our U.S. Open content page. Daniel Westhoff has made us. It just, it looks really good. You will enjoy it, folks. Draw breakdowns, podcasts, articles. It's all there for you to enjoy. Of course, if you've missed any of them, go check out the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews, and Inside Out Podcast feeds. Like, rate, subscribe, review to all of them. Share them with your friends. And we want to hear your takes. Send us your picks. Send us your thoughts on all of the action going on in New York. You can do that by reaching out to us at Cracked Rackets on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, or to me directly at great shot pod on Twitter. I always appreciate hearing from you. And again, I think more and more of you continue to reach out and it's always enjoyable for me. So thank you for doing that. A huge thank you as well to our friends at Midwest Sports and Aerobar for their continued support. Go to MidwestSports.com. Use that promo code CR15 
15 go to aerobar.com use the promo code cracked 15 you'll look good you'll feel good and then folks you will play good and the reason i always play good because of the work of our super producers max ligner and daniel westoff who as always have a of an editing job to do day in day out there's the two best in the business there are no one else i would rather work with and of course we're going to keep them busy here at cracked rackets as we try to provide all of you with the sort of content you deserve over these next two weeks in new york so with that in mind for our wonderful super producers max ligner and daniel westoff our friends at midwest sports and aerobar and all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say, folks. That's the break, and it's U.S. Open time. We'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.